Everybody sleep well? It's kind of nice to have a crisp morning and a crisp deep evening. And uh, something about in Houston, when you get these kind of days and that little bit of mist kind of brings out the air, the clean air, kind of washes out some things. And then with the azaleas and the dogwood starting to bloom, it, uh, it really uh, gives you a sense of, as we started in the circle today, being grounded, grounded in the earth and, and with each other. So uh, the other thing I think what was very uh, interesting about uh, Teokasen's opening and then the words from others that were shared is that sense again that with climate change, I particularly find we're at that intersection of the contemporary and the timeless. That uh, we, we alluded to this a little bit last night for those who couldn't come, but that, that sense that um, the gift of earth, of nature, of just being, and that responsibility that is one that has, what, millennia, I mean, it's rooted in millennia, time immemorial. And uh, to be able to be at this point of a day where we explore both that timelessness and then moving it contemporarily into what is our responsibility today is quite a gift. And I think you're on in for a very interesting start of the day if you haven't found it to be interesting already. So uh, welcome. And then uh, after... As the morning progresses, um, <clears throat> we will move in for lunch over to University of St. Thomas, and uh, Ashley Clemmer will give us all those uh, um, guidance points along the way. So welcome, welcome. Um, we're really excited today about um, the interfaith, inter-spiritual panel this morning, and um, it's just an honor to have the opportunity to present to you a very good friend, um, collaborator at times, um, a uh, person that we could muse stories about life with, uh, Dr. Steve Combs. Um, I think I, we were just talking briefly, I think I met Steve both directly and indirectly when he was on the steering committee for a pastoral letter that was developed by the Roman Catholic bishops along the Columbia River system. So that would have been into Canada all the way out to the Pacific uh, coast. And one of the things that I was doing then, I was the director of Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, where we had a, a very robust environmental program, was that this had to be ecumenical, we hoped. We were not Catholics, but we we're not part of the diocese, but the idea that this would be very ecumenical. Well, we were hoping for something that it was already happening <laughs> because of Steve's leadership. That that idea that ecumenism sometimes gets uh, professionalized, which was unfortunate because it, the, the word is not a word that's co-opted by, can be really co-opted by anybody. It can have different meanings. But the idea that the river system, which gives life, which is political, which is controversial, uh, touches everybody, both the good and the challenges. So I think with Steve's leadership ensured that it really became an ecumenical uh, process and project that involved tribal ent entities, farmers, ranchers, city folk, rural folk, fish, life, foliage, fauna, etc. And it told me a lot about the approach that Steve has as a professor, as an academician, 
I'm not going to go into depth because his bio is in your, your program. But, and then, uh, what, 18 years in Oregon, uh, having the opportunity as one community-based organization to spend time and work with the academy, and particularly University of Portland and his department, was a gift uh, that I will take with me for the rest of my life because of the kind of people that I met through that experience. Very different, much like this symposium, coming from very different points of the compass, very different points of discipline, <clears throat> ethnic background, countries of origin, but united around this idea of what is the timeless call that we have as human beings in this contemporary moment to be about, you use the words you want to use, but be good stewards, to be responsible people walking the earth, uh, care for each other, and how do we make that such that it's not just for today, but as we talked last night, for seven, at least seven generations out, if not more. So I want to just leave the technical th piece Dr. Combs in the program, but I wanted to share that personal reflection because of the way that he is also as an academician has opened up <clears throat> so many eyes and possibilities and career options and further study and just life ways of living for so many, not only students, but community members, learners at large. It's quite a gift to have him here today. He'll introduce our panelists to have all of you here today and have all of you here today in the Rothko Chapel, we're just blessed. So I want to stop there. Now, my only other piece of business that I'm supposed to do is just remind you to please silence your cell phones and please refrain from taking pictures. And part of that is so that we can really be present with one another here in this space and uh, do a little radical act of deconnecting technologically for just a minute. Now, it's not totally pure because we are videotaping the session so that about a week or so down the road, we'll have it posted so you can come back to it, share it with others. But uh, I think that helps us just be in the here and now. So with nothing else, Dr. Combs, thank you. Thank you, David. <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning. Um, David always gives me far too much credit, but it's nice to have a chance to work with him again. Because um, I am an academician, and because I typically speak for one hour and 40 minutes before I stop, I've written out what I want to say so that there's hope that other people can contribute. So I'm going to begin with some brief remarks. The metaphor of a map about climate change is a useful one because it so closely resembles the nature of our knowledge. Science, through experimentation and modeling, has begun to provide a description we can think of as a map of the physical world. Over the time, the map gets more detailed as we understand interrelated biogeochemical cycles, food webs, the persistence of chemical pollutants, climatic cycles, and so forth. A map can more or less accurately indicate locations and possible routes. It can contain important features, lakes and rivers, glaciers and the changes over time, oceans, forests, deserts, cities, highways, coastlines, islands, but it cannot tell us where we ought to go. Owning a map, even a really good map, only tells you what the world looks like. You need to know both your location and have a destination and a compass to know what direction to go in. Faith traditions provide an ethical compass. 
You can expect the map that science provides will probably be a lot like an old-fashioned paper road map that I think a few of us in this room will remember. Hard to unfold, <coughs> awkward to hold, difficult to find the key on, full of complicated symbols. However, on a trip, using a confusing map is still a lot better than just guessing what's ahead in the direction you're moving. Really old maps that even I don't remember used to have blank areas of the ocean labeled, here be monsters. And sometimes the future of climate change feels a lot like that. Our sea level rise or increasing droughts and wildfires or stronger hurricanes that deliver more rain than ever before forms of unknown monster. Hurricane Harvey, with a new storm total rainfall record of 60.58 inches, was certainly something like that. Maybe putting what we know of those monsters on our map can help us find a way to avoid at least some of them. An article by Arthur Nelson, published just a week ago in a newspaper, said this, and I'm quoting him. Climate change was responsible for the majority of underreported humanitarian disasters last year, according to an analysis of more than a million online news stories. Whole populations were affected by food crises in countries ravaged by drought and hurricanes, such as Ethiopia and Haiti. Yet neither crisis generated more than a thousand global news stories each. In Madagascar, more than a million people went hungry as corn, cassava, and rice fields withered under drought and severe El Nino conditions. Almost half the country's children had been stunted, but their suffering sparked few headlines. The article had a picture at the top of a little girl in Madagascar tearing open the wrapping of a food supplement bar with her teeth. Maybe we ought to get not just Ethiopia and Haiti and Madagascar, but her on the map as well. Perhaps a map that had people on it would help us choose our direction more wisely. I think we could make a very good case that she deserves to be on the map. She is in the mountain range, but she's part of our world, and the path we take will impact her life for better or worse. We know that for this journey we're on as the planet warms, time is of the essence. The projections make it clear we are losing choices we might want to make year by year. Not making a decision to act is itself a decision. Delaying is a decision with irrevocable consequences. We're already on the map somewhere and moving. That makes choosing our future direction a very urgent matter. This morning we'll have an interfaith conversation about the map of climate change from the faith perspectives of our panelists. Talk about what features on the map matter, what our faith compasses tell us our possible paths to take, and whether we might reimagine new directions and paths going forward. The panelists here today will serve to model the other faith voices that exist. We'll do what we can in our limited time. There are also small maps. Those exist, right? Nope, never mind. Each panelist will speak for about five minutes in order. 
And then we will have a period for conversation. And then we'll have a period for audience questions and comments. And in that last period, it would be very helpful if you waited to speak until one of the people with the traveling microphone brought it to you so that everybody else in the room can hear you, because otherwise you, you won't be very audible at all. Okay, in order of uh, speaking using very brief introductions, Rajwant Singh on the far side is the president of EcoSeek, and he's the executive director of the Guru Gobind Singh Foundation. Rabbi Daniel Swartz is the executive director of the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life and the spiritual leader of Temple Hesed. Sister Damien Marie Savino is the Dean of Science and Sustainability at Aquinas College. And Vijaya Nagarajan is an associate professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies and also the Program on Environmental Studies at the University of San Francisco. And now our panelists can begin. Good morning. Um, it is really so good to be here with you all. Um, I'm coming from a Sikh uh, tradition and uh, the founder of uh, faith, Guru Nanak, uh, lays down uh, a, a sort of ethical ground on which we can lead our lives and uh, be responsible to ourselves and, and to um, our future generations. So one of the things which he asks in the opening lines of the Sikh uh, scriptures is, give sachyara hoye, give kude to tepal. That how do we experience divinity within? How do we break the wall of falsehood and ego? And the whole uh, scriptures of 1430 pages is an explanation how do we tread our path, how do we take each step, each breath, which brings us more closer to experiencing our divinity within. And once we experience that power and that uh, beautiful presence, then we can start experiencing that presence outside also. So there's a, a disconnect between who we are and what we see outside. We see things that we want to overcome, we want to control, we want to be powerful, and we want to manage. And that's where we are failing and we have failed. So Guru Nanak says, what is your relationship with whatever is surrounding you? So here's one of the lines that Sikh scriptures or the Sikhs are uh, enjoined to speak or sing every day. Uh, during the morning prayer and in the evening prayer, there's a line called Pavan Guru Pani Pita Mata Tart Mahat. I'm sorry, I can't just recite, say these words because they're in poetry and they are supposed to be singing. So I have to sing. Would you allow me? Pavan Guru Pani Pita Pavan Guru Pani Pita Mata Tarit Mahat <laughs> 
माता तरत महत दिवस रात दोए दाई दाया खेले सगल जगत माता तरत महत माता तरत महत he says pavan guru that the air is the teacher professor <laughs> that the teacher te uh, treats every student equally teacher wants every student to succeed so air is that playing that role for us to all have this experience and the water is the father there will be no life if there was no water and the last is mata tart that the earth is the mother so if you start experiencing and having this kind of relationship with the nature that it is your father it is your mother it is your teacher just like we will not dishonor our mother in front of anybody or in private there is some even though umbilical cord has been cut but that relationship with mother never fades away so that relationship is not what we are experiencing with nature and with mother earth and then he says sagal samagri jakatana this entire universe and this nature is actually the body of god so we are destroying nature you're destroying god's presence amongst us the second point which uh, sikh uh, scriptures teaches us that you are part of nature you're not here to manage nature you're not here to empower nature dekh phool phool phoole ahang tyag tyage give up your ego and see everything is blossoming everything is wants to flower and give and spread fragrance but you are not able to experience that because you are full of ego and you want to control things so you must have the humility to really understand what is your relationship with nature what what is your role are you just like nature loves diversity and the trees in the jungle in the forest they are standing right next to each other and their roots are underneath supporting each other there's there is no rivalry that this is root this tree is getting bigger than me or this tree is getting more fruits than i there's just symbiotic relationship and that is what nature teaches us and that is what guru nanak says the founder of the sikh faith that go around look for those teaching uh, moments when you surround yourself with nature one of the lines he says balhari kudrat vasya tirant na jai lakhya that the god is present in nature in order for you to experience that divinity that is a chance that god is giving you and one of the last things that we have uh, started doing is uh guru nanak's 550th birth anniversary is is going to be this year and we launched a drive that we're going to plant 550 trees at 1820 locations and that way we will be planting 1 million trees in celebrating the birth anniversary of guru nanak and hundreds and uh, thousands of people are especially young people are all motivated <coughs> that this is wonderful wonderful way to plant a forest around yourselves and celebrate this birth anniversary and also 
gave a moment for everyone to have a, a really wonderful breathing experience. Thank you. Good morning. The, uh, I'm also going to have written words just to keep myself uh, on task. In Tractate Tamid 32a, the Talmud imagines a conversation between Alexander the Great and the sages. In addition to asking for directions to an unknown country, Alexander poses this question, who is wise? The sages answer, the one who knows what is being born. The map my faith brings to the climate crisis is more about time than about space, less about knowledge than about wisdom. And it begins with that particular piece of wisdom. We need to know what is being born. That means both becoming completely present to the now, recognizing the true nature of this moment, and yet simultaneously finding the newborn possible path in front of us that can bring us from this moment to a sustainable, whole, and holy future. Our first step on that path, in the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, is a pilgrimage in time. On Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, we step into the expansiveness of holy time, when we are neither a producer nor a consumer, when we are human beings and not just human doings. For we can't deal with a climate crisis until we value being more than buying. In holy time, we are turned, tuned in not only to rest and recreation, but attuned to creation, to the unfolding of the seasons, each with their own unique flavor of holiness, whether we're talking about Passover, celebrating spring united with freedom, or on Sukkot, wholeness associated with harvest. But it's not truly holy time. Indeed, there can be no true freedom or peace or wholeness unless we are guided on our path by Deuteronomy's call, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. Bache ibn Pekuda in the 11th century taught that the repetition of the word justice is to show that only just means can lead to a just destination. And justice needs to be established not only between the powerful and the vulnerable, between the rich and the poor, but between the present, now, and future generations. In words that could have been written today about the climate crisis, the prophet Ezekiel proclaims, is it not enough for you to graze on choice grazing ground but you must also trample with your feet what is left from your grazing? And is it not enough for you to drink clear water, but you must also muddy with your feet what is left? And must my flock graze on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied? We should know by now that you can't have justice if you're thinking about just us. And so a key part of justice in this moment is being born 
to recognize the need for an expansion of the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke so movingly about. So I want to do an exercise this morning. Hopefully, we're going to close our eyes and then open them as opposed to just going back to sleep. So close your eyes <laughs> and picture the first image that comes to mind when you hear the word environment. Now open your eyes and raise your hand if there were any people in that picture. This is part of the problem. Even today, even with us gathered for this purpose, even after hearing uh, the Guru's uh, teaching about us being a part of nature, we still see ourselves as apart from it. The environment is whales and wilderness, but it's, it's where we live and work and pray and play. Joseph Ibn Kaspi taught in the 14th century, in our pride, that ego you talked about, in our pride, we foolishly imagine that there is no kinship between us and the rest of the animal world, how much less with plants and minerals. To eradicate this foolish notion, God gave us certain precepts, some concerning minerals, other vegetable, other animal, other human. The Torah inculcates in us a sense of our modesty and lowliness so that we should be ever cognizant of the fact that we are of the same stuff as the ass and the cow, the cabbage and the pomegranate, and even the lifeless stone. For Caspi, one key purpose of our religious norms is that they are supposed to link us with all of life. So what are some of the norms that might weave us into this broader fabric of life? In my tradition, there are abundant texts about what we owe to each other, how we are called to take preventative actions, and how we are to distribute costs for actions on behalf of the common good. It is my hope that such texts from across the spectrum of religious and cultural traditions can spark our collective moral imaginations and guide us on this journey. Speaking of hope, I want to close with a thought about one of the monsters on the map that was raised last night. Despair a ravenous monster that eats agency and spreads paralysis. In the book of Job, one of the great treatises on despair, we read, there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will renew itself. Its shoots will not cease. If its roots are old in the earth and its stump dies in the ground at the scent of water, it will bud and produce branches like a sapling. It is, at this moment, entirely reasonable to despair. But my faith is for me the waters drawn in joy that renew hope and bring rescue and strength so that I can face despair head-on, without denial, and nonetheless be able to climb toward a better future. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very honored to be here this morning. In 2015, Pope Francis, in his groundbreaking document, Laudato Si, gave the world a map of how to care for creation. Laudato Si means praise be to thee, which is the opening words of St. Francis of Assisi's famous canticle, extolling Mother Earth, Brother Sun, and Sister Moon. And as a Franciscan, I, I personally find that very attractive. Um, and important 
But Laudato Si isn't just addressed to Catholics or Christians, but really to all peoples, to all of us here. So what I would like to share today, um, continuing on our map theme, is a brief roadmap of Laudato Si, pausing to point out a few landmarks along the way from the perspective of the Catholic or the Christian tradition. The first stop on the map is chapter one, the science. As evidenced by making the science the opening chapter, the Catholic Church respects science and takes it seriously. This chapter expresses concern over what's happening to our common home and accepts what science is telling us about the seriousness of climate change. The second stop is the theology in chapter two, which is brought into dialogue with science. And here I would like to point out a few distinguishing landmarks. First, the title of the chapter is The Gospel of Creation, meaning that God has written a precious book whose letters are the multitude of created things present in the universe. That's a quote. The entire material world is interconnected and speaks of God's love for us. And in response, we need to learn how to read the book of creation and heed its messages. One key message in the book of creation is that all creatures possess an intrinsic goodness which must be respected. And human beings too, being part of creation, as Rabbi Daniel spoke of, are special creatures who deserve our care and protection. We reverence, as Christians, the dignity of all life across the evolutionary continuum from non-human to human. To use Pope Francis's words, we are to hear the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. Another key message in the book of creation is that human life is grounded in three fundamental and closely intertwined relationships. Usually we think of two, love of God and love of neighbor, but the Pope breaks new ground by adding a third and putting love of creation on the map. And practically, I think what this means is that one concrete spiritual practice of creation care is to examine our consciences for the ways in which we've gone off course in our relationships with God, with our neighbors, and with the earth itself. This leads us to the third stop on the map, chapter three, and the human roots of the ecological crisis. The external deserts are growing because the internal deserts have become so vast. We've lost our way in a wasteland of technocracy and consumerism, which has really made us indifferent to the harm we inflict on other persons and on the earth. This has compromised our humanity so we don't know who we are anymore. Either we see humans as the disease of creation and we want to eliminate ourselves, or we go to the other extreme and have a grandiose sense of humans as masters and dominators. We need to get back on course and rediscover who we are. As creative beings with hearts, minds, and souls, our unique role as humans is to heal and restore the earth, to be farmers, as it were, or gardeners, rather than self-centered exploiters. How do we do this? That's the tricky question. In chapter four, Pope Francis speaks of the urgency for an integral ecology, one that, ecology, one that promotes both natural and human flourishing. 
integral ecology as our final destination and the goal of this sustainability pilgrimage. Integral ecology requires macro, the really big, and micro, the very personal and small levels of effort. At the macro level, Pope Francis challenges us to collaborate as a global community to redefine our notion of true progress. To this end, in 2015, he invited mayors from around the world to the Vatican for a first ever meeting to discuss how to achieve sustainable development in cities. These kinds of dialogues and ones like we're having at this conference can get us back on course onto a road toward new forms of progress that benefit both natural and human flourishing. But the journey takes us full circle because integral ecology also needs to take place right here at home. Above all, it is we human beings who need to change. We need to reorient our lifestyles to minimize waste and excess consumption, and even to boycott certain products because purchasing is a moral act. The Pope ends Laudato Si by asserting that there is a nobility in caring for creation through small, daily actions. By doing so, the footprints of our lives will be a little bit lighter on the earth, so future generations, and hopefully seven generations, have the opportunity to put themselves on the map. Thank you. One of the questions I've been thinking about for the last few years is how do a billion Hindus reduce the fever of the earth? What are the actions that they can do? What, what do their texts tell them? Um, and I wanted to talk about three things today. One is one of the key concepts in the Upanishads. Um, it's interesting, 800 BCE, a bunch of people left the cities and were disenchanted with the urban world. This was 800 BCE, <laughs> um, not you know, quite a bit of time ago. Um, and they thought they went off into the forest and created universities to think about this question. And out of that came the Upanishads. The Upanishads really means to sit, to sit in the forest um, thinking together. So I want, to all, I want to bring the forest into the city in terms of we're in this beautiful city of Houston. Um, you know, how do we stay in conversation with the forest? Um, the self, the, one of the remarkable uh, results of the thinking of the Upanishads is the construction of the self. So there's the larger individual self, um, there's a smaller individual self, the Atman, that exists in each one of us and in all the beings in the universe and all the stuff in the universe. Um, and then there's the larger cosmological self with the capital S um, and what we call in many different names. Um, and the key question of the Upanishads, the goal of life is to understand how those two are the same. And sometimes that can take a lifetime and sometimes that can take many lifetimes, depending on your path. We don't have many lifetimes. We have 10 to 12 years to figure this out. Um, so we have to move very, very fast. So one of the things I, I'm thinking about is how do we, in every action that we do, remember this knowledge? Remember the idea that who we are inside 
the smaller self is intimately connected to this larger self. And we have many languages and many cultures and many religions that teach us how to see that way. Um, and unfortunately, our modern industrial culture hides that. It's like a veil. So the first thing we need to do is pierce that veil so that we can live with that other knowledge every single day. The second thing I want to talk about was I've been working for many years to understand this very simple Hindu women's ritual that's done in South India every morning. Um, it's performed by 20 million women at dawn and it's done with rice flour and it's done at the thresholds of houses and businesses and temples and it's called the kolam and the kolam means beauty in the Tamil language. And one of the things that women always would tell me, they'd give me a dozen reasons of why they did the kolam every morning before dawn, um, the key one was to feed a thousand souls. And I kept trying to understand what that meant. And this is what I learned in the Dhanva Shastras, that when we create a household, any human being, we are creating a huge reign of homelessness. And we must be aware of that. All the evacuation of all the species that lived in the space that we eventually call our home, our household, to set up that household is itself a great sin. Because we've kicked out all the insects and all the birds and all the creatures that lived in that space. Um, and so the whole time that we're a householder, we need to be aware of the lifelong consequences of the moral impact of that act. And it can never be made up, according to the Hindu texts, that all our life we spend to give back um, to the creatures that we stole their house from. And so this rice flour is an edible art form. So every morning, right after you brush your teeth, as the first ritual act of the day, you feed a thousand souls. So that that kolam, that rice flour design, and it's very beautiful, um, is literally eaten off the ground by small ants, by insects, by birds, and earthworms. And a few hours later, it's gone. And the idea of giving is non-reciprocal generosity. I think we often think about the gift as one of exchange, ritual of exchange. We need to really think about how do we give without expecting anything in return. And in fact, give to those that we cannot get anything back from because we have taken so much without giving back. So I leave that concept also with you. The idea of non-reciprocal generosity. How do we act every day with as many actions uh, towards of, of non-reciprocal generosity? The third thing I wanted to leave with you from the Upanishads, there's a beautiful story I think it's extremely relevant for us today. It's from the Katha Upanishads. And it's about a, a teenager. And it reminds me of the Sunrise Movement that's taking off around the world. A teenager, Nachiketa, who seeks out Yama, the god of death, asks him, what is death? And what happens after death? I want to know the secret of death. If everyone who is born has to die, then what does death really mean? The god of Yama replies to him and says, I don't want to tell you. I can't tell you. It's my secret. 
Yama offers to give Nachiketa kingdoms to rule, beautiful women, dancing horses, anything to not answer this question. But Nachiketa stays on purpose. He says, no, I don't care about all these other things that you're offering me. I don't need kingdoms. I don't need uh, dancing horses. I want to know the answer to this question. And I feel that, you know, in a sense, we, when we're born, we die. We know we're going to die somehow or the other. But now we're looking at, we're facing the collective death of not just our individual lives, but the human civilization as we know it, and all the beings uh, that have occupied um, our earth with us, our neighbors. And this is what Yama says. Yama says, the joy of the spirit never abides, but not what seems pleasant to the senses. Both of these, deferring in their purpose, prompt us to action. All is well for those who choose the joy of the spirit, but they miss the goal of life if you only prefer the pleasant. So we must think there is a certain joy that's perennial that comes from within, or are we going to go for the passing pleasures? And I think our society, as it was in 800 BCE, in the cities in Benares along the Ganga, are designed for our pleasures, are designed for our conveniences. It's one of the most common motifs of our society is, let's, this is more convenient. So every time you hear that word, think, what are the externalities that are happening from that convenience? Um, and who are we harming with that convenience? So it's such an easy word, um, but we really need to rethink that notion. So how to think about pleasure and joy in a deeper sense than the passing pleasures. And I think that's one of the things that Hinduism can contribute, is the notion of desire. Where do our desires come from? You know, how do we track our desires? Um, how do we not let our, what desires do we attend to? And which desires do we let control us? Um, I also think that one of the things that we could think about, I've been working in this movement of religion and ecology for the last few decades, and how do we understand each religious tradition and each cultural tradition bringing forth a certain kind of wisdom that we all can collectively enact? So one of the things I've been very impressed with is the Shabbat. You know, if everybody in the world, all eight billion of us, decided to, with the, uh, you know, uh, teaching uh, help with um, Jewish teachers, how do we all take a 24-hour rest every week? And that would immediately reduce our energy consumption by one-seventh every week. It's really simple, you know, at some level. I, I need a Shabbat. I need a rest. You know, we're all like, you know, furiously running and not looking. So I just wanted to say that there are many, many tools in our toolbox. And I, f I do think we've done this before. We can do this again. We did this with, you know, um, putting the man on the moon. We putting, you know, we, the, the World War II, uh, getting over the depression, um, even in our own American resources, um, you know, we have, we know how to do this. Um, and so the other thing I wanted to leave you with is the sense of we, we are conditioned to think of I, the I-ness of us, of each of us. And I 
urge you to think of all the different we's that you are a part of, all the associations. Tocqueville talked about this in terms of the American democracy, that that was one of the key uh, you know, discoveries in the United States was associations. So what are all the different associations that we're in that we can act in concord together? So I want to leave you with those thoughts. Um, and one other, I just want to tell a story of when I was 11 years old, um, before we came back the second time to America, we went back to our ancestral village. And it was, I was 11 years old, and I saw electricity coming to this village. The first light bulb. And the Hindu priest blessed the light bulb, and it wasn't covered up, there was no lamp, it was just, you know, raw, naked uh, light bulb. And the whole village gathered together before it was turned on. And, you know, I'd been around electricity all my life, but I felt the excitement of the villagers getting electricity and getting this light bulb. And the light went on, and everybody was like, wow, the light bulb. And then I was there for two more months, and I noticed that it never got turned on. And I remember asking before we left, I was like, why didn't anybody turn on the light bulb? And the villagers told me, oh, because we don't really need it. And it's too precious. And I thought, here it was, you know, 45 years ago, most of the world had this relation to electricity, that it was too precious and that we didn't need it. And how did we get from there to where we are now? And it's not that I'm saying that we don't need electricity. I'm very much a woman of the modern world, so we need electricity. But there's somewhere we lost the sense of enoughness. We lost the sense of the middle path of the Buddha, of when that threshold that we've had enough. And so I urge all of us to also think along those lines as well. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. So this is a, a chance for our panelists to converse for a little while, since you've had a chance to hear one another, and um, and after that we can we can bring the audience in as well. <laughs> yes, I could start. I was struck by how much um, common ground we had in hearing each of you speak. I mean. Uh, and I've, I've just been fascinated, you know, the sense of enoughness, the sense of the internal. The, the, there just was an awful lot that we could talk about, I think, for hours that we mm. would share. I think generally we tend to think of the differences between the religious traditions, but in this area we have an awful lot to share. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I really thank you all for your comments. It was really wonderful. I was struck by uh, Rabbi's... Uh, sense of justice, because that is also very much an integral part of the Sikh faith, standing up for, for, for others, and especially those who are voiceless. And in the present context, it is Mother Earth which is voiceless and is being plundered upon, and that's where we need to stand collectively for justice. So thank you for sharing that wisdom. I was struck by what you said about the air being the teacher. I loved that. You know, I think that is, if we just leave the conference with that alone, I'm thrilled, you know. And there's so much we're leaving with, but we're taking with us as a gift. But the, to think of the air as our teacher, and that this is, 
the teaching that we need to follow right now. Um, it's so simple and, and elegant. Um, the credit goes to Guru Nanak. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that theme of, of appreciating air, you know, mm -hmm. that if we can do that, which most people don't unless it's not there. Um, but we heard that um, in the, the blessings this morning, uh, the ceremony before, and in what you said. Um, the first prayer in the Jewish tradition that you say upon waking, um, that thanks God for returning our, our soul. Um, but the word for soul is uh, a word, the same word as breathing in. Mm. Um, mm. And, and it really is this idea that without, if we, if we stop breathing for even a little bit, we're in big trouble. And then the second blessing that you say upon waking is when you go to the bathroom. And it says, uh, uh, you thank God, nikavim, nikavim, chalulim, chalulim, that the things that need to be open are open, and the things that need to be closed are closed. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if we could see those kinds of things as blessings, um, and not things to take for granted, it, it, it shifts, because then every time you open your mouth to speak, is, there, is, that, is that something that's supposed to be open or not? Um, uh, every time you eat, to be grateful for it. Every time you breathe, to take in that, that, that sense of, of blessing mm. in, in breath. Um, when I first, I've been asthmatic my whole life, um, when I first got to college, uh, having grown up mostly in the Midwest and being in this, you know, elite Eastern institution where I felt very uh, at a loss. It was like the third day I was there, I woke up with an asthma attack. And what was really interesting was having to cope with not being able to breathe, which I knew how to do. I knew what, what to do. And then being able to breathe at the end of that was what recentered me. It was like, oh, I can figure out how to breathe, so I can figure out whatever else this university has for me, you know? Um, <laughs> um, That's great. One of the things I was struck by, Sister Damien Marie um, uh, quoted from Laudato Si, actually what my, my favorite environmental quote, which is Pope Francis quoting Pope Benedict. And it's, um, the, the quote is that the, the external deserts have grown, are growing because the internal deserts have grown so vast. And one of the things that made me think of, and, and all of you talked about this, that we always talk about climate change as though what we really need to do is heal the planet. We need to get out there and, and we need to fix, fix the planet. Um, but you could also say that what we really need to do is fix ourselves, and, and that if we fixed ourselves, the planet would, would end up fixed. And it, it just might be possible using the sort of uh, geoengineering that was talked about last night. It just might be possible to fix the planet without fixing ourselves mm. by finding ways to continue to consume and and that would be a terrible tragedy. 
because it, this is an opportunity for us to see where this problem really originated. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I know as I live, because I also have been doing this for since I was quite young, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, now it's really heartening to see so many traditions and so many different groups speaking into this. But I think as I've lived with it, I've realized the importance of that kind of that personal examine. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure that all of the traditions must have some form, but in the Christian tradition, there's a Jesuit examine, which is done you know, every night looking at your actions during the day. And last year I was speaking up at University of Saskatchewan and did a talk about the examine, but using kind of like using it in relation to our responsibility to creation as well as to our neighbor and to God. And how do we do that every night to examine, you know, where did I waste today? Where was I frivolous? Mm -hmm. uh, where, where did I hurt a person or hurt creation? Mm -hmm. And then what can I do tomorrow? <laughs> to do it better. And I think as hard as that is for people, because we are in a culture that wants to live kind of on the surface sometimes, I think we need that depth. And it's just as simple as every night before I go to bed, can I do a personal examine about how I've treated God, how I've treated my neighbor, and how I've treated the earth. Um, and to add the earth into that examine, which for us as Christians is Something, I guess it's always been there, but Pope Francis really brought it to the fore, and I think we need to be talking about it more. Mm -hmm. um, but so I, I'm trying to teach my students to, to try and use that practice also. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, thank you. It's the internal is where the problem really is. And when we change internally, there might be a wave of goodness that goes out from one daily act mm -hmm. toward the good, and it might seem for, not important, but if you do it and then your friend does it and a million people do it, that's a million waves of goodness mm -hmm. going out. And that's, I think, one way that we can change the, our, how, how the earth is being treated and how we are treating others and God. And for me, that brings up a point that, that both of you raised explicitly about, about ego and self. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how I think our, um, our egos are both oversized and very fragile yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's part of why we don't want to examine ourselves because we don't want to mess with this idea of our self-importance mm -hmm. um, and if we examine it too closely we might be less important than we think we are yeah. um, but but as long as we have that ego it blinds us to so many other things yes. it, it blinds us to how we're hurting other people how we're hurting the world it blinds us to the fact that there is something more than us and then, then there's a national ego. Right. The right. race ego, the religion ego. Yeah. Right. You know, right. We are greater than the others. And right. We so, are superior yeah. than the others. So this opportunity to associate with others, which should be a great thing to connect us, becomes another operation of ego um, yeah. Yeah. That, that isolates us. This us I'm okay to be connected with, but not that us. Right, you know. right, right. So. Yeah. I was I struck by your non-reciprocal Generosity. Yeah. That's yeah. A beautiful. So is there a, a particular term in Hindu scriptures for non-reciprocal um, the, the whole idea of feeding a thousand souls, uh -huh. I think, is emblematic of that. Yeah. Um, because the idea of feeding, because you can't, you don't know the animals that you displaced when you built your house. I mean, I, when I discovered that, it was in a footnote. 
you know, of the Dharma Shastras, and I was just stunned by it. I looked at this and I was like, is this really saying what it's saying? You know, that the, the, I just was amazed at the sensitivity that was in that footnote. <laughs> that it was, that when you build a house, when we become householders, it's one of the greatest sins hmm. as humans that we can enact. You know, we think we're so innocent when we're building our house. And that's where the other pole is the ascetic. Mm. You know, and that the, the idea of desire, that it's disciplined desires. I think that's one of the key things in Hinduism as well, that you aspire to, and that you work at both in yourself as well as with others, is how do you, you have desires, but how do you discipline those desires? Mm-hmm. You know, both in the I and the we. Um, and I think, you know, the rituals of generosity. I mean, we, in modern culture, there's a kind of uh, rituals of selfishness and rituals of greed. And we don't even think of them as rituals. We just think of them as, they're so part of our culture. You know, we don't think of them as rituals, but they are rituals. If an anthropologist were to come and look at us, <laughs> we are enacting these rituals of greed and rituals of selfishness and rituals of, you know, too muchness, um, of rituals of excess. So we really, you know, rituals are something that are humanly constructed. So that's where it gives me hope is we can humanly reconstruct this, you know. <laughs> we can change the rituals of selfishness to rituals of generosity. Um, there was an amazing, uh, while I was doing my, while I was living in India doing my fieldwork for the Kolam, I noticed another tool, a refrigerator came in to this neighborhood. And it was a tiny little refrigerator like the college refrigerators that we have in America. And this was in Madurai and, you know, this was about 25 years ago and people were so excited again the priest was blessing the refrigerator and you know the neighbor who got the refrigerator everybody was very excited for her it was the first refrigerator coming into that street the next day i noticed something very different happened usually before the refrigerator and again i'm not saying that we shouldn't have a refrigerator but it's just interesting before the refrigerator came every householder always cooked an extra meal because, you know, just like in many religious traditions, Hinduism had the idea that, you know, the god or goddess could show up in the form of a beggar at your door. And you're obliged as a householder to feed that beggar. And when you have that extra meal, even a grain of rice is the goddess, and you cannot waste the goddess. She'd be deeply offended. So you have this extra meal, and so the children would be sent off after every meal to find a beggar. So you had to beg for a beggar <laughs> as a householder. That was your duty. So go find a beggar so that this food does not go to waste. Because in that heat, within an hour, that food will go to waste. So you see children fanning out in the neighborhood. Come, please come to our house. Please come to our house. Imagine that relation to a beggar. The minute, the day after, a few days after the refrigerator came, I noticed something entirely different. When a beggar showed up at the door, the same woman, who was a very good woman, says to the beggar, Shoo, shoo, what are you doing here? We don't need you anymore. So something like the refrigerator, which is good to preserve food and reduce women's work. The last thing I would want is for women to work all day, like my mother did, to cook four meal, three meals a day. Nevertheless, the impact of a tiny refrigerator the, 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 the rituals of selfishness that it generates is huge, right, that yeah. we're not even aware of. Mm. Um, and so I think that's what we, we must become, you know, 
conscious mm. yeah. know, of the impact of our tools. I think that creating, how do we get new rituals then that we can, and I, I know one thing we've worked at, I'm, I'm at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the college has invested in a zero waste initiative. We're not there, we're maybe at about 78% average across the campus. But what I have found is it's a really good example of how to teach young people about disciplining their mm -hmm. desires mm -hmm. um, and also about the nature of virtue. Because first, you have to get them aware that they're even just throwing stuff that could be recycled or composted. Mm -hmm. So we have composting, recycling, and then we also have um, a TerraCycle, they call it, for all your candy wrappers and things, um, and then electronics. And, but, so the first step is get becoming aware. Then once they become aware, then they need to learn, you know, which goes in which mm -hmm. bin. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like when you begin to get virtue, you first you do your exam and you actually become aware, right? So that's a pretty big thing, just becoming aware. Then you learn, okay, what can I do? What are some better behaviors? And then after a while, now when I go somewhere and I, I don't have the zero waste in all the bins, I am, I, I'm like, wow, there's something wrong here, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think what it's like when you do come to a point of discipline or virtue, it really bothers you when you don't achieve it or when you yes. um, yeah. fall down from it. So that, to me, I really love that ritual of zero waste, and I hadn't thought of it as a, a way to combat rituals of selfishness, but I think that's a, maybe we could think of more of those, you know, how could we do more of those kinds of positive rituals mm -hmm. to counter some of the rituals of, of selfishness that are there. That's but, wonderful, thank you. <laughs> I think we have just a, a short time that, oh, we have lots of time left? Oh, I'm sorry, please. <laughs> Anybody still have well, uh, so um, I was just going to say, you know, for me, the 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 ritual of uh, uh, of gratitude that mm -hmm. struck me the most recently was langar, um, the the sea custom of of feeding that you can give more of the background, but it's from the first guru, from yes. your founder, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 the idea that that there are these traditions out there already, it's, it's almost repurposing rituals yes, yeah. instead of having to invent yeah, new ones, yeah, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, thinking about when you say the, the moda ani, that you can't take that breath if the breath isn't, isn't, uh, if the air isn't clean, and, and where does that breath come from, you know, the, uh, I, uh, this movie I saw not so long ago called Racing Extinction, which is a, uh, uh, a good movie if, if you also have hope, because if you don't have hope, then it's just going to be heartbreaking. Um, but one of the scientists in there says, take a breath, take a second breath. That one came from the plankton in the ocean. Um, mm -hmm. And just thinking of where, where our breaths come from, from the forest, from the ocean, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, we, we already thank God for the breath, but let's be more specific and, and, and learn that. And, mm -hmm. and in Langar, as, as that food is shared with everybody, to be thinking about where it came from and, and, and our gratitude, uh, not just to receive the food, but to, at, at, at the bounty of the earth. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things which we are, kind of introducing an idea that uh, at your own birthday, plant a tree. Mm -hmm. So that way, this is another ritual that, you know, the kids can be taught 
that we can start planting trees as we celebrate our birthday. And uh, one of the things which I was struck as a generosity that, uh, you know, the real generosity we learn from nature, especially mm -hmm. from trees. Yeah. yeah. And there's a beautiful line, it's karam ped shakha hari taram ful fal gyan, that uh, be like a tree that uh, your branches will, will be taken over by God. And uh, mm. the fruit of this tree will be the real religion. Not the religion that you, the label that you carry, but the true religion is, is connection. And is the, that will come out of this, you being a tree. And the, and the final product of this tree will be the wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then once you become a tree, which is a giving tree, and he says, then you have pat prapat chavkani, that your shade will be so thick and dense that everyone would want to come near you. Mm -hmm. And that's where you dissolve your ego. Chuka man abhiman. Abhiman is a Hindi word, but it's also used by Guru Nanak. And so that is how, and then once you become a tree like that, then nanak hare nasukai, that you will never be uh, dry up, you will always be, always be evergreen tree. That's so amazing because yesterday um, at our mass, we have, you know, readings that are set throughout the year, and the psalm yesterday was Psalm 1. And it was about wisdom, and the wisdom is like being a tree. tree you become like a tree waters. planted by flowing mm -hmm. waters. So it's almost it's so similar to what you're absolutely. saying. Absolutely. And yesterday, roots, another roots extend. Absolutely. Yesterday, another thing which I was struck by the lecture that the the, the waste, the leftovers, is also contributing, mm -hmm. and that is something which has really changed my thought process. That from now on. And I used to remember my mother used to tell me that the grandfather, my grandfather, whom I never met, that whenever she would feed him, he would eat from the plate and then he will, whatever the water he had left, he will put it on the plate, wash the plate and drink the same water. Oh. So it was just, uh, so there's a completely uh, understanding that even the washing of the plate would also cause a waste. So that's how our forefathers and ancestors used to live. And that's something which from last night I've been thinking that this is how we need to bring back that thinking. And I commit myself for that task. Mm -hmm. yeah. so we, we only have so many people here t t today. I, I remember um, talking to a good friend of mine, an engineering faculty member, a, a dean actually, um, uh, who is Muslim, and asking him in the hall, I mean, the kind of thing you can ask a good friend. I said, you know, it was after an event we had on campus about environment and religion. I said, could you help me understand something coming from your faith that, that is a distinctive element? And he said, I'll, I'll think about it and come back, talk to you tomorrow. And so he came into my office the next day. He said, you know, um, what I didn't hear anyone say yesterday is that wasting is a sin. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that, no, you didn't hear that. And, and that's because there, there, there wasn't a speaker that was um, uh, bringing it up. But I think that that was very 
suddenly informative to me mm -hmm. because it was it was the the most obvious thing to him. I think um, this is an opportunity now to bring the audience into the conversation. We have uh, two volunteers who have microphones, and if you have a comment or a question and you hold your hand up, one will come um, running over in, in order they spot you. And please wait until you have the microphone because we really all want to hear what you have to say. Uh, I would like to ask a question uh, that is not meant as a challenge, but that, but that perturbs me uh, when I think about the very uh, august and important religious and spiritual traditions that we have developed in the world, but um, are they a match, whatever, for mass consumerism? In other words, seeing the beautiful monuments in Rome, but seeing the consumerism, or telling a million people in Mumbai it would really be a good idea for you not to get an automobile or air conditioning. I've got my air conditioning, so uh, I can do some of the rituals you're talking about, but is this, we can all do things inside the loop in Houston, but does, do, do some of the spiritual and religious ideals that you hold, are they sellable and relevant to mass consumerism, but also what I would call mass comfortism, just saying I'd like a little window unit and maybe a little car uh, mm -hmm. as well. Is there, is there any way that that dialogue could be expanded to that forum? I think that's a very profound question. I think that's probably the most profound question of our times. Um, and I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I think I mean, I think of proportionality, I guess. And I think of how do we, you know, understand, like, we, I mean, I'm an American. I come from California. Um, I was raised, I was born in India and raised in Delhi and Washington, D.C. And um, I feel like I've had bifocal lenses, you know, of two different ways of growing up. But I think, you know, we are here right now and we can, we can remap you know, Houston, or San Francisco, or the Bay Area, or the state of California, or Washington, D.C. So I feel like we have to stand where we're standing right now, and we have to go with what we're seeing in front of us, and what we know, and we have to act very quickly. And I don't think, you know, I can say to someone in Mumbai, you shouldn't get a refrigerator, or you shouldn't get a car. But I think by example, I think we can, you know, if we, radically change our lifestyles and if we we have our own prophets here Thoreau um, was an Emerson you know the American transcendentalists um, you know I feel like Thoreau witnessed the beginning of the parentheses that we're locked into and we have to figure out a way to close the parentheses for ourselves and for the world at large so we need to figure that out we created this problem from here you know, it started, you know, in England, Eli Whitney. I mean, we, we started it here. So we have a huge responsibility. So I don't feel like I'm in the position to tell someone else, you know, as long as I have a refrigerator and I'm not going on a bicycle, right? But I think, I mean, I see in San Francisco the last 10 years, you know, you go to a, stop, you know, a, a stoplight and there's 100 bicycles. It's, it's remarkable 
how this transformation took place. I would never have imagined 10 years ago that so many people and so many bike paths would be created, you know. And I think that one of the things that we think of asceticism as a, as a negative, I think we need to celebrate. I think we need to think of, you know, uh, asceticism as a liberation, you know, and every tradition has that. And I think we need to be inspired by, you know, I was myself partly inspired by Native American traditions, working with Native American traditions. You know, I was, in a, I was a, an atheist and an agnostic when it came to Hinduism, and then I was able to look at my own traditions through Native American eyes and see what was there. I couldn't see it before. And so I think, you know, every Christian can be inspired by many traditions and see what is there. They don't need to change. They just need to see. It's there in Judaism. It's there in Christianity, right? So it's with the Psalms. And, and um, so I think, you know, that's what we need to do very, very quickly. And I think the institutions are there, you know, and I think people can act in concert, you know, very quickly. I mean, I think if we don't, we will become like the dinosaurs. And that's what, that's what I think we have to keep the image of. You know, do we want to be dinosaurs or not? <laughs> yeah. So we have a choice, you know, every minute. And so I don't think, I mean, it's a very important question and we need to think about that all the time. I think yeah. it is an important question. I might uh, be a little provocative with this, but I think that we also, in the countries that are developed, actually have a greater responsibility. And I'm not saying that we get rid of all our refrigerators or all our cars, but I do think it should cut deeper for us, because I, for one, do, do not feel it is ethical to be telling someone who's never had electricity that you yeah. can't have electricity. Absolutely. But I think we really, that's why I feel very convicted that we really need to start working together. And I, I'm wondering if there's intentional communities is one way of coming at this. Now a parish or a congregation can be an intentional community, but how much are we really doing in those groupings? I think the spirituality and the religion is really important because otherwise you don't get the personal motivation and it's more like an exterior thing. But so somehow we need to really work on these kinds of intentional communities that choose to live differently and really take a cut. But be happy. You know, I deal a lot with my students on what do you really need to be happy and think about that now. Do you need material things or do you need something else? Do you need friendship? Do you need a relationship with the transcendent God? And so I, I'm trying to get myself to think, to cut, you know, and in our religious life, that's part of the asceticism that we live, which is, I think, very important. But laypersons can do this, too. Yeah, and so. I think in addition to intentional community, there has to be intentional communication. You know, one of the things yeah. that struck me last night was how few people are talking about it. And, mm -hmm. and, and really, unfortunately, this conference is for everybody who's not in the room, right? <laughs> um, so your job is to leave uh, whenever you leave and to talk with other people about it who, and, that, and that's not always a fun and pleasant thing, but it well, needs to be done. One of the things that we, we have tried to do from, from our organization is we, uh, we created a, a celebration called Sikh Environment Day. Because there was no Sikh Environment Day. There's a World Environment Day, but many religions don't really participate as a religious community to, to celebrate. Individuals do that. So we felt that how do we connect the Sikhs to take action? 
So we created a day, March 14th, as a Sikh Environment Day, which, which is the enthronement day of the seventh Sikh Guru, who was really a great environmentalist. And we were surprised at how young people are ready to accept the relevance of their religion for today's problems. And that's where we are not really doing a good job, is how is religion relevant in facing today's problems. And this really provided many of the young people took their bicycle rallies, plantation, um, you know, taking action to clean, clean surroundings. I think those are the, some of the things where social media can play a major role. And we have seen that in the last in seven to eight years since we started this celebration, last year we had 5,000 Sikh organizations and gurdwaras, schools and colleges take action. And through our social media and rest of the media, we were able to track down that we reached close to six million people. <coughs> Which is, which is really an immense way yeah. to really engage, especially young people who are connected. So I feel that uh, there is a great opportunity uh, to really motivate uh, and, you know, so our strategy is awareness, action, and celebration. We have to connect saving environment and working for climate change with something where people can celebrate and say, yeah, we did something. I think the despair, <laughs> despair is also is very disempowering. People say, oh, there's nothing we can do, we are all dead. So I think that narrative has to change and we say, hey, religions and Christ and Moses and Krishna has provided how we do things which can turn things around and we can become, you know, co-partners with God. Mm -hmm. This has been highly uh, inspiring to me with the interfaith discussion we just had. I come from a chemical engineering perspective, a simple engineer, and I've lived all my life earning a living working in air pollution control. I just retired. I just came to listen and be inspired by the poetry of what you're talking about. And to respond to the comment made about how do we handle the desire for millions of people wanting new air conditioners. You know, perhaps uh, we need to combine the inspiration that comes from such spiritual discussions to the problem-solving types out there. Uh, not just, uh, 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 you know, those who have theoretical knowledge but who can go apply and come up with ways to reduce energy to get you a better air conditioner uh, where we respect the earth, we respect all the aspects to, no, all the problems of the last 50 years, uh, how do we solve where we get to the next billion or two billion people, uh, where they could have a little better standard of living, but be inspired by all these, you know. I think the knowledge base is there in the world. Uh, amongst the, the Asians, for example, China and India, there are millions and millions of smart people who are willing to listen to this kind of a dialogue. And I hope you can go over to India and China and give this talk. Rathko Chapel can go international. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, regarding y'all's conversation about personal examination, um, I'm a psychotherapist mm -hmm. and I, 
I'm curious to hear your different reflections on how to do that without tipping over into destructive guilt. Mm -hmm. Because I know, and I think it's a very personal process that each person has to kind of find. It feels like they're mm -hmm. what's right for them, their balance, and I'm in my own you know, journey with that personally. But I know that, you know, as I talk with people about this, people who are really concerned, who want to recycle, who want to do all these things, there's a tendency for a lot of people for it to tip over into beyond what I think a healthy guilt is a real thing, but into a guilt where it becomes very harsh, very self-diminishing. And so I'm curious to hear y'all's y'all's comments on kind of how to find that balance, how you view that. I don't think you can find it by yourself. Yeah. I, I think that's part of where community comes in. Um, and, and that's part of what we're, this for me is one of the big challenges, is that we're, we're so isolated from each other. You know, we have iPhones and iPads, you yeah. know, in our in our age, right? You know, um, it's, it's, it's 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 the it's the and and we don't, you know, I when I I, I teach teenagers and and there's many wonderful inspiring things about teaching teenagers, and then when the class is over, they're sitting next to each other, all on their own communication devices, even if they're texting the person next to them. Yeah. And, um, and you, you, you can't sustain hope and have a right balance of, of helpful guilt but not going over if you're by yourself. You just can't. Yeah. Yeah. You, need, you need to have partners. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, within the Jewish tradition, and there's parallels in, all, in, in other traditions, certainly, was what we call Hevruta. And that is that, that you, you, you have a, a, at least one partner, and you might have a variety of them, that, that keeps you honest in different sorts of things. A partner that you study with, a, par a partner that you commit about rules, uh, rituals with, a partner that you commit about exercise with, you know, um, what, whatever it is that, that we just, we don't function so well by ourselves. Um, and, and so finding, if you don't find a whole community, at least finding somebody to do this with, I think is really key. Mm -hmm. I think too, um, the preeminence of love, uh, not to sound Pollyannish, but to know that in whatever tradition, the bottom line of a religious tradition is, is love, really, and that even, so I, I can speak from the Christian tradition, God loves us even in our worst moments, right? And so, to, now that takes a long time, a lifetime to live into, and I can't say that I've reached that point even myself, but to know that God loves us no matter what. And so when you feel like you failed, you know you can start again tomorrow. The other thing is I know in our community, we have a lot of um, sisters who are counselors. And sometimes this personal examine, for some people might point, if you're working especially with a, a partner or a community, to the fact that you might need to get some counseling. Mm -hmm. So, because, you, you know, a personal exam and when it is touching on issues that need psychological counseling really needs to point you in that direction too. So. I think is, there's time for one more, one more question. 
I found your <clears throat> comments so inspiring because you helped me flip what has been a major problem in my life. Uh, a person that stalks me has systematically sabotaged the thermostat on the furnace. So I realized if I fix it, they'll come back again. So I invested in fleece clothes and natural things. And if it gets as cold outdoors as inside, I'm camping in the Rockies. And so I got a down jacket. Then came the car, removing bolts from the wheels, so I never felt safe driving. So Metro. And people thought, oh, gee, I couldn't afford a car. And then what was wrong with you that you didn't get a car? And finally, people are catching on. It's so nice to ride Metro. Came here this morning, didn't worry about a parking place. Go straight to the museum, and especially the symphony. After the symphony, I savor it. So said goodbye to that. And the refrigerator. When I had made 120 muffins to give to a shelter for Christmas. And that really angered me. And I realized, okay, ice chest. And that did handle a lot of the wastage that I had done. And so fortunately, it's only a four block walk to get my bag of ice and being single, I can deal with it. So I realize this is not everybody's solution. But before, these used to be irritations. And you helped me see that, no, this is helping me claim a better life. And it's a blessing in disguise. Thank you for your witness. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think um, now, we're uh, about to go into a short break, and I wanted to just say this, this conversation um, exceeded my very best expectations. Mm -hmm. thank, thank all four of you. This has been wonderful, and I, I think we should thank our panelists. I want to thank him for, for his yes. Yes. leadership. Yes, thank you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I also want to thank the Rothko Chapel for bringing us all together yes. and bringing this event to happen. So thank you. Well, thank you all for being here, and thank you all to our panelists. We are going to take a, a short 15-minute break uh, to transition to the next session. So I invite you all to go have another bite and drink and use the restrooms, and we'll meet you back in here uh, promptly at 10.30. Thanks. <laughs>